Just a few announcements then before we read God's word together. Uh, obviously this afternoon at four o'clock we've got our gospel meeting and on that occasion I believe it's Sid that's going to be preaching the gospel for us and we look forward to that. Then on Thursday evening at half past seven we've got our, our midweek meeting and we spend some time in prayer and I don't like to lay hands on people suddenly but uh, <laughs> but uh, it was originally going to be Jim but obviously Jim's not here so I think Sid has very kindly volunteered to continue his studies in Revelation so that's the plan for Thursday night thank you for stepping in Sid I uh, don't think there's any I obviously remember Monday as well I've got to drop in at 11 o'clock to 1 o'clock on Monday so if you're free on Monday do feel free to go along to that I think that's very well attended. So I don't think I've got any other announcements, so we'll turn now to 1 Timothy, and I'm going to finish off part of the end of chapter 3, chapter 3 verse 14, and then go into 1 Timothy chapter 4 this morning. Um, And so that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning as we continue our studies in 1 Timothy. Now, one of Paul's big concerns as he writes this letter to his friend Timothy is that Timothy and the other believers at Ephesus, where Timothy is, would cultivate true godliness in their lives. Because the problem is that at Ephesus there were false teachers and they had got some very funny ideas about what godliness looks like. So Paul, he's at pains to actually explain what true godliness really lives so that people would live lives that are built on the truth. And so it gets us thinking then about this subject of godliness and what do we think about when we think about what it means to be godly? What do we think about when we think about a godly person? Now, I would hope that for many of us, when we think about godliness and a godly person, we would have some very positive role models in our mind that we immediately bring to mind, people that are characterized by true godliness. But sometimes, of course, our ideas of godliness do get a bit warped and a bit skewed, and sometimes we can imagine that a godly person is somebody who's a bit austere, somebody that doesn't smile very much, somebody that doesn't have very much enjoyment of life, Uh, somebody that maybe doesn't spend very much time with other people, they're a bit of uh, a loner. And we get these misconceptions about what it actually means to be godly. And certainly at Ephesus, there were lots of misunderstandings of what godliness actually meant. And so Paul, throughout this letter to Timothy, he actually brings attention to the subject of godliness quite frequently. So already in chapter 2, verse 2, when John was uh, speaking in, in that chapter, Remember that Paul encourages us to pray that we would live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So he wants us to cultivate godliness. And then when we come to chapter 4 today, see one of the key verses there is where Paul says physical training, physical exercise is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for the present life and the life to come. And so he's really going to emphasize the importance of godliness. And the reason, of course, is that you've got these false teachers, and they're telling people, if you want to really enter into the proper spiritual life, then you need to follow these restrictive rules. And we already saw in chapter 1 that they were digging into the Old Testament and coming up with myths and were focusing on endless genealogies. And we don't exactly know the things that we're saying, but they were coming up with these really 
bizarre restrictions and saying, well, if you do these things, then you'll truly be godly. Then you'll truly know God. And so Paul has to rein that in and say, actually, that's not what godliness is about. So we're going to see today what godliness is really about. And I think it's an important message for us today because when we look around us, there is increasing emphasis on things that are akin to godliness. Spirituality, for example, is very much in vogue. Just last week in The Guardian, uh, there was a, an interview with a pop star, Laureen. I don't know if anybody watches Eurovision. Um, Eurovision was uh, about a week ago, big, massive pop concert, and there was a Swedish pop star won it called Laureen. Anyway, the title of the article in the newspaper was, I'm a very spiritual person. And as you read it, you discovered that this pop star, she, she feels these forces of energy in the universe that tell her what to do. And she, she felt this force of energy that told her to enter into this, this song contest. And this is, very, this is very much in vogue in the world around us. And if you say to somebody that you're a spiritual person, they're like, yeah, that, that's cool. I'm into meditation and mindfulness too. And, and you, you'll get a, a lot of... Uh, a lot of interest in spirituality. But as we read the Bible, we discover that that a much better term actually is to think about godliness. To think about how as Christians, we're not supposed to be characterized by this vague mysticism, this vague spirituality, but actually it's a life focused on a person. It's a life focused on God himself. And so that's what godliness is. It's devotion to God. And I think the other reason why we need to think about godliness is because, like I said, we get that these warped views about what it means to be godly. Um, we get misconceptions about what it means. And so we sometimes think about it as something which is wearisome and dull. And so Paul's instructions then to Timothy in the first century are relevant to us today in the 21st century as, what, as we think about what it means to be godly and to live godly lives. So we're going to read the, the passage together. And like I said, I'm going to go back to a little bit that Jim covered in chapter 3 and verse 14. And the reason for this is not because I didn't think Jim properly covered it, but just because it connects very closely to what comes in chapter 4. So we're going to read from chapter 3 and verse 14 and listen to what Paul, through the Holy Spirit, tells us about living godly. And he writes in chapter 3, verse 14 of 1 Timothy, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing to you these, with these instructions, so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He, God, appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and ordered them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving 
because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them, so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And this is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So we see then that Paul, he's concluding chapter 3 by telling Timothy that the reason why he's writing is so that people will know how they ought to conduct themselves in God's household. He imagines the church as God's family. His household, where God's order is preeminent. And so he wants people to know how to live lives that mark themselves out as belonging to God's family. Godly lives. And as he tells them about what it means to to live in a way that's worthy of God, to live a godly life, he reminds them at the end of chapter 3 and verse 16 of where the source of our true godliness lies. And so he says in verse 16, great is the mystery of godliness. I like the way the NIV unpacks that a bit and says the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. You see, for Paul, a mystery is something which had not been previously disclosed to other generations, but has now been unveiled to us in this new era of salvation in Jesus Christ. And now he's saying that the mystery, the secret has been unveiled of true godliness. What is that secret? Well, it's none other than the person of Jesus Christ himself. That is the secret. That is what God had hidden in ages past, but now had revealed through the revelation of Jesus Christ, him entering into the world, living and dying and rising again from the dead. We have discovered all that God intends for us to know about himself through Jesus Christ. And so when Paul is saying that this is the secret, the mystery of true godliness, he's saying that if we want to be godly, it's not about vague mysticism. It's not about following rules. It's about focusing your life on that person who came into this world and is risen and reigning so that our lives would be devoted to him. That is the source of godliness. That is what empowers our Christian living. That is what we are aiming towards. And then Paul, he quotes this Christian hymn that tells us about the Lord Jesus. 
And he, he, just, he quotes this in, in verse 16, and he writes, He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. And as he quotes this, which is probably an ancient hymn, ancient poem of some sort, which describes for us the Lord Jesus, there's some things that are very clear in it, and some things which are not quite so clear to me. So clearly it's focused on Jesus Christ, him entering into the world. He was manifested in the flesh. It speaks of his exaltation and glory, how he was seen by angels, how he was received up in glory, and it speaks of his acceptance through the world as the gospel is preached throughout the world. And so when it says he appeared in the flesh, it's probably speaking about him entering into the world, living amongst us, where we saw God living Amongst us, he was seen by angels. I think probably refers to his ascension into glory after the resurrection, where they saw him alive after his suffering. Um, and I think when it says he was vindicated by the Spirit, in that second line again, I think that's also thinking about his his resurrection, where the Spirit raised him from the dead. He was preached among the nations and was believed on in the world, I think, refers to the spread of the gospel through the Roman world as the disciples went to the ends of the earth to tell people about Jesus Christ. And then we get to that last line, he was taken up in glory. That's a little bit tricky because if you read the lines in chronological sequence, it seems to go through his life, through his his resurrection and ascension, the preaching of the gospel. And then he was received, he was exalted, received up in glory. That's a little bit tricky if you try to fit it into chronological sequence, but I don't think Paul is intending for us to read it in a purely chronological order. I think he's, he's focusing on this line as the last line, exalted in glory, taken up in glory, so that we would see that that is the point that he's driving towards. All the other lines revolve around this. Jesus' life was leaning up to this exaltation. The preaching of the gospel is based on this exaltation of Jesus Christ. And so the exaltation of Jesus Christ is the point that Paul is driving towards. Now, why am I saying all that about this, these words that Paul quotes here? Just to emphasize the point that Paul is trying to make here, that the exaltation of Jesus Christ is the source of true godliness. It's not about following a set of religious rules and regulations as a way of trying to earn acceptance with God. But it's coming to that one who has been exalted and given all authority in heaven and earth. He's been given the highest place in the universe. And true godliness is about being focused on him. And since we serve a a risen savior who is a real person, who is alive even now, then true godliness is nothing short of devotion to him. Now these false teachers, they were probably coming along and saying that they had discovered some secret, some special mystery that enabled them to enter into a deeper relationship with God. And very often that's what false teachers do. They'll tell you that they've discovered some special insight that unlocks everything else. They claim that they've discovered some special secret And for Paul, he's saying there's only one secret that you need to know. There's only one mystery that you need to know that has been unveiled to us. And that is Jesus Christ himself. If you want to know God, look to Jesus Christ. Now that ought to be a tremendous comfort to us this morning. Because as we think about what it means to be godly, there's many people. And they claim that you need to know something extra. 
that you need to get something special in order to enter into a higher plane of spirituality or a higher plane of godliness if you really want to know God. And people will flog books and TV shows and courses and seminars and, and tell you that they have discovered the secrets in which you can enter into a deeper experience with God. And that's at the heart of all false teaching, that there's some special secret. But Paul comes along and he says, the secret you need to know the source of true godliness is Jesus Christ himself. And so in the words of Graham Kendrick, in that hymn that we like to sing, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing, nothing greater than to know Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, we receive everything that God has for us. That's what true godliness is about. And the reason why that's true is because Jesus Christ is a person who is currently living and reigning at the right hand of the Father. If he was still in the tomb, if he was still far removed from us, if he had no contact with us, then devotion to him would make little sense. But because he is alive, because all power has been entrusted to him, because he is personally interested in each one of his people, then true godliness is devotion to him, and that's at the heart of the Christian life. And so the people then that leave us with the greatest impression of being godly, should be those people, not that are dull, but those people that are most captivated by Jesus Christ. Those people that we meet and we spend time talking with them and we go away and we think to ourselves, they really know Jesus. They really know what it means to spend time with Jesus Christ. And I would offer that appeal to us if we want to be truly godly then it's going to be a matter not on focusing on, on behavioral techniques or some special kind of mysticism or anything like that, but being focused on Jesus Christ. Because before us stands one who has met with us this morning, uh, pledged his love to us, the one who is risen and ascended and who wants to enjoy communion with us more than we oftentimes want to enjoy communion with him. And he invites us to then spend our lives moment by moment enjoying him, talking to him, knowing his presence in our lives. And that, for Paul, is what true godliness is about. And so when we get to chapter 4, we discover that the false teachers that Paul opposes have got this really warped view of what godliness is. And so Paul has to warn Timothy against him. And he says, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Now, when Paul says that the Spirit clearly teaches this, I'm not sure whether Paul was talking about something which was specially revealed to him, or whether this is something that he read in Scripture, and thus is, is clearly revealed by the Spirit through Scripture. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 24, the Lord himself says, At that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Uh, and so maybe Paul is thinking specifically about the Lord's words in passages like this here. The point is the same, however, that the problem is that in these last days ahead of the return of Christ, that period from Christ's ascension into heaven until the present day, these last days, there are false teachers that try to deceive people, that tell people lies about God, that tell people lies about what godliness is about. And Paul says that such teachers are inspired by demons. 
their teaching is demonic. Now, sometimes when we think about demonic activity, we think about things that are occult-like. We think about things that involve, you know, communicating with the dead and, and all kinds of weird things. But when Paul thinks about the demonic, a lot of the time it's a lot more mundane than that. The, the false teaching itself, which might look perfectly plausible to many people, can actually be inspired by demons themselves. And what characterized demonic activity is teaching that leads us away from Jesus Christ. Anything that tells us, this is better than Jesus, this will give you better access to God than Jesus, is inspired by demons, no less. And these false teachers then, they're teaching people that if they follow these restrictive rules that they've come up with, then it will give them special access to God. Better than Jesus himself. And this is what they're telling people that they really need to know. And what they are saying specifically, we learn in verse 3, is that they're forbidding people to marry and ordering them to abstain from certain foods. Now, as much as we would like Paul to actually explain in more detail what was going on here and why they were saying these things and what were they excluding and so on, Paul doesn't give us these details, probably, I think, because problems vary from time to time and from place to place. And at the root of them all, they're all the same because they're all trying to divert attention from Jesus Christ and focus attention, something that you can do to gain access to God. And so he doesn't go into a lot of detail, but he explains why such prohibitions are actually completely mistaken. He says about food, for example, that God created it to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Paul's point is that if we know the truth about God, we'll realize that God is a gracious giver of all that he has created for us to enjoy. And there's nothing to be received or nothing to be excluded. Everything is to be enjoyed by the Christian. And he gives specifically the example of food in verse 5 where he says that such gifts of food that God gives to us are consecrated by the word of God and prayer. And it's the word of God in the Bible it tells us that we can freely enjoy all the food that God has given to us. Now granted, in the Old Testament, at the start of the history of God's people, the Israelites, he gave them restrictions which were temporary restrictions, such as we see in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. Temporary restrictions set up set a, for a particular time so that the people would be set apart for God and learn what it means to live a life devoted to God. Now, Paul uses the analogy in Galatians of children. When you've got a child, you give them specific rules when they're young. But when they're older, those rules can be taken away because they've learned the lessons that you've put in place. And so the same it is with, with food. There's restrictions put in place in the Old Testament to provide lessons which are then taken away. So in Mark chapter 7, verse 19, we read... a that the Lord Jesus, uh, he declared all foods clean. And that's what Mark explicitly says in verse, chapter 7, verse 19. And so the word of God, it consecrates our food. It sets it apart for God's use and tells us that this is what God has given to us. But Paul says that not only is food consecrated or set apart for God's use through the word of God, but also through prayer as well. 
And this highlights the Christian practice of giving thanks for our food or saying grace as it's sometimes called. The point is that we give thanks to God for the grace that he shows to us in giving us these gifts to enjoy. And so this has often been a practice of Christians before their meals. They will give thanks to God. And in doing so, they follow the pattern of the Lord Jesus himself. When you look at the gospel accounts, whether he's providing food for multitudes or whether it's a simple meal with his own disciples, before he takes the food, he'll take it and he'll give thanks to God for it. And this is a really valuable practice that we should encourage amongst Christians because Paul says here that The food that God has given to us is consecrated. It's set apart for God's use through the word of God and through prayer. And so that is that that God uses it for his purposes to sustain us and to give us enjoyment uh, of that food. And Paul's problem here is not only do they displace the Lord Jesus Christ from the very center, but they make us ungrateful towards all that God has given to us to enjoy. Because true godliness isn't about being miserable and going about with a dour face, not enjoying life. True godliness is found in being deeply thankful for all that God has given to us to enjoy. And so a godly person is a thankful person. False piety, false godliness that pretends to be godliness, imagines that God is actually out to deprive us That God is most satisfied when we go through the most difficulty, when we have the least pleasure in life. And Paul points out that's demonic. It's demonic to imagine that God is out to deprive you of enjoyment in life. Sometimes, um, an example of this, sometimes when a marriage breaks down, for example, One parent will try to embitter the children against the other parent. And they'll try to say, you know, that that other parent, they really really don't like you. They're they're really horrible. They're really nasty people. Uh, And sometimes that's true. But a lot of the times it's it's heartbreaking to see precisely because that, that desire to embitter the children actually sets the children against the other parent rather than seeing the love that they sometimes have for that child. And that's what demons do. They see us and they want to estrange us from God. And the way they do that, and the way that they've been doing that from the very beginning is to try and tell us that actually God is depriving us of something. God, God's holding something from you. God doesn't want you to have true enjoyment. But here we see that the godly life, the life centered on Jesus Christ is a life that enjoys All the gifts that God gives to us in this life. Everything God gives is good and is to be received with thanksgiving, says Paul. Of course, that's not to say that we can enjoy everything in excess or that there's no context in which we should enjoy certain things. You know, food, for example, it's wrong to be gluttonous. It's wrong to just pig out in food all the time. Paul doesn't go into those details because the error he's trying to counteract is the one which says, you know, it's bad. You need to cut things out of your life in order to be close to God. And so the implication for us is that we should be, of all people, the most thankful. We should be the kind of people that start each day with joy in our hearts and saying thank you to God for the gift of another day. The kind of people that appreciate the simple gifts that God gives us in life when he gives us food to eat. 
who say thank you to God before that. The kind of people that close each day by saying thank you to God for caring for us through that day and for all he's done for us that day. And when you put it that way, true godliness is both very simple and deeply attractive as well. But just because godliness doesn't involve the denial of God's good gifts, just because true godliness is centered on Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us and all that he is for us, doesn't mean that true godliness involves no effort. And so in verses 6 through to the end of chapter 4, Paul highlights the effort that's involved in growing in godliness. And the key verse here is verse 8. Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for the present life and the life to come. And Paul says that this is a faithful saying. It's a trustworthy statement that Christians should really hold on to as something valuable. The point is that godliness is a bit like physical training, physical exercise. And just as if you want to run a marathon, you've got to train over time in order to have the endurance that you need in order to run that race. So also with godliness, a godly character doesn't happen overnight. There's no quick fix. It's something which is developed over the course of a lifetime that's devoted to Jesus Christ. And the problem then is that there are various things that will make us spiritually flabby, that won't help us to be spiritually fit. And Paul mentions in verse 7 there's things like godless myths and old wives' tales that will divert people away from godliness. And instead of those things which are taking you away from Jesus, Paul says, train yourself to be godly. And so he doesn't tell us what these these godless myths actually were, these, these stories actually were, because he wants us to not focus on all that could go wrong. He wants us to focus on the positive. How do we live a godly life? How do we enjoy godly life now? Something which, as Paul says here in verse 8, will be something which leads to enjoyment of God's life now and in the future. Uh, How do we do that? And this is what he's going to explain in this section. And so he says in verse 10 that he labors and strives because this, this godliness, is the hope for all people. And this hope is grounded in God who is the saviour of all people. That is, he's able to save everybody. But that salvation doesn't come to everybody unless they believe. So he's the saver, especially of those who believe. And so that's why he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, you and everyone else at Ephesus, believe the truth. Believe in the truth of what God has done for you and focus on Jesus Christ and on living for him. So what does true godliness look like? Well, Paul gives some examples to Timothy in verses 11 to 16. He says to Timothy, set an example for the believers in speech and conduct in love and faith and purity. And so true godliness that's devoted to Jesus Christ will affect the way that we talk, will affect the way that we live our lives out, will affect the way we love others. And so Paul is saying, Timothy, live an exemplary life that will model Jesus Christ to those around you. He knows other things that are characteristic of godliness, such as verse 13, he says, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture and to preaching and teaching. He says, don't neglect The gift that was given to you. You've got spiritual gift, Timothy. Don't neglect it. Use it. That's part of being godly. He says in verse 16, watch your life and doctrine closely. Keep an eye on yourself. 
be self-aware. And he says, persevere in them, keep going. That's the endurance that you need. Because if Timothy does this, then he'll save both himself and his hearers from spiritual destruction. Now, all of these are marks of true godliness. And they all require effort. They don't happen automatically. Some people have a view of the spiritual life which is very passive. And I think it's harmful. There is a popular saying, and I've probably used it on occasion, let go and let God. The idea of that you grow in the spiritual life by not doing stuff, you let God. That is not the emphasis of the New Testament. That, it, that can be really harmful because the emphasis in the New Testament is to hold on to God, to press on with God, to actually grow spiritually. And that requires hard work. It requires training. It's not passive. And yes, God works in us to do and to will for his good pleasure. And to that extent, it's empowered by him. But that doesn't mean we sit back and do nothing. I remember at one time, I tried to do a 100 press-up challenge. And so I got myself a little app, and it gave me a little target for each day. No, I never got to the end of it, as will be clear to all of you. But what, what I discovered was that it sets you a target of a few press-ups the first few days, and you're, you're fine, and you keep going. And then after a few weeks, you discover that what would have been impossible for you in the first day is actually now possible because you've built up strength, you've built up endurance. And Paul then draws a parallel between godliness and physical activity because Christian character is built up in exactly the same way. It's not a matter of instantly changing overnight. You suddenly surrender all to God and you enter into stage two of the Christian life. It's not a matter of you know, saying some special prayer where we completely dedicate ourselves to God or some special spiritual experience whereby we move to the next level. It's like training. You keep going and incrementally you enjoy more of Jesus Christ. So what about our own lives? Are we training to be godly? Paul gives some very practical instructions to Timothy about what that means. Making sure he lives an exemplary life. Reading scripture with other believers. Proclaiming God's word. Using his spiritual gifts. Being self-aware of his, his teaching and his lifestyle. And all of these are things that we need to put into practice in our own lives if we want to grow in godliness. And let me be clear about something. When I'm talking about growing in godliness, I'm not saying that you, that you earn God's acceptance by growing in these things, or that we get better access to God by doing all of these things, because that would go against what I've said at the start. We're focused on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who reconciles us to God. He's the focus of our godliness. He is the one who makes us godly. He brings us to know God. But just because we come to know God through Jesus Christ and not through special techniques doesn't mean that we can't grow in our experience of knowing God. That we can't grow in our deepening enjoyment of God. And so when I'm talking about training yourself in godliness, growing in godliness, the idea is that we become increasingly aware of God. We become more thankful for God, we enjoy more of his presence as we live lives that are more marked 
by his presence with us. And like I said, this is something which happens over time. And Paul gives several examples to Timothy. But just to take one of those and think about how it might apply in our own lives. Paul tells Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of scripture. A couple of reasons for that. One is that first century Ephesus was probably a semi-literate society. And so if people wanted to hear the Bible, then they wouldn't crack open a physical book or a codex or a manuscript or whatever they had. They would come along to wherever the believers were and they would read the Bible. Someone would stand up and read the Bible. I think that's a great practice, actually. Because the other reason why I think Paul tells Timothy to do this is because just it's good to read together. Because then we get shaped by the word of God together. But it's also important for us to think more generally about the, the role of the word of God in our lives. I am a huge advocate of people working their way through the Bible over a period of time. I'm not fussed in the, the time it takes you, whether it's six months, a year, two years, three years. It's good to just work your way reading through the Bible over a period of time. Sometimes, if you're anything like me, you'll read a passage of scripture and you'll come away and think... I'm not sure if I got much out of that because it just doesn't do anything for you. But that's Paul's point about it. It's like physical training because a single passage of scripture might not transform you overnight. Probably not. But as you imbibe God's word over time and as it seeps into your life and as you listen to what God has to say to you, then you become shaped by it. And then in a year's time, or a few years' time, you become aware of God's dealings with his people down through the ages. And that impresses itself on your life so that it shapes your decision-making, the way that you live, the way that you think, the way that you love. And that's then what it means to develop a Christian character. It's not about saying, oh yeah, I'm going to change tonight and everything will be different. It's about building into our lives habits of God's gracious work in our lives so that we're becoming increasingly conformed to the people that God wants us to be. That's what it means to train ourselves in godliness. So then, as I come to the close, what I hope I've been able to show is that godliness isn't the dull thing that people sometimes imagine it to be, going about with a doer face, refusing to enjoy life. Because as we've seen, it's a living relationship with Jesus Christ who is alive, who cares for us. And true godliness is about living with Jesus and knowing him in our lives. True godliness is about enjoying all that he has given for us to enjoy. Simple things like food and the relationships that we have. But, as we've seen, it requires disciplined commitment, spiritual exercise, as we press on to become the kinds of people that are marked by God's presence in our lives and to enjoy more of God day by day. So may God help us as we seek to live godly lives for him. Let's close in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you that, that through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have come to know you. Thank you that through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have come to know you as the gracious God who gives yourself to us wholeheartedly. We thank you for the cross.
where the Lord Jesus proved for us that you are a God who holds nothing back from us. And so we pray that we would press on to know you more day by day, to become increasingly godly people, to become increasingly thankful for all your gifts of grace, and to make use of all that you've given to us and to to build habits of grace in our lives day by day through prayer and reading the Bible and sharing your word with others that would cause us to grow, to be more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. And so ultimately we ask these things not for our sake, but for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.